Welcome to the August edition of Information's Crossroads podcast. I'm John Burke, America's editor for Information, and we're here to deliver you all the relevant news in project finance in 30 minutes or less, or we'll deliver you a free pizza. Joining me today is a diverse panel. Uh, first, we have Katie Gavala, our uh, Greenfields reporter for Latin America, then Molly Higgins, a SparkSpread analyst, and uh, Abby Miller, who you've heard before. She's our uh, P3 reporter in the U.S. and Canada. Katie, first, we pivot to Central and South America. You've uh, spent a good part of the year reporting on theories and realized dreams, That's right. so to speak. We can safely say that South America has a lot of underinvested infrastructure at this point. As you see, um, various development agencies continue to build roads, telecommunications, networks, uh, and transmission and generation for electricity. Um, where you usually come in on your reporting, of course, is that we see a lot of uh, early stage uh, situations where these development agencies hire advisors, conduct feasibility studies, and um, you know they tend to last a while. You know these things Years don't get wrapped up. Yeah, yep. ex- exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought that it would be good for you just to share some of your experiences in terms of like which projects have succeeded mm-hmm. from all these like theoretical stories uh, and why they've succeeded. And I will let you take it away. Yeah, that sounds great. Uh, pretty well put. Risky business trying to predict which projects are going to come to fruition, but might as well make some guesses here. Um, the first is a group uh, of roads in Chile. Roads are pretty reliable assets. Chile is a pretty reliable market. Um, we understand from the concessions direction office that they are going to be tendering um, advisory studies for um, three existing roads, or engineering studies rather, for three existing roads before the first quarter of next year. These are existing toll roads with known demand. Two of them go through Santiago, so these projects should really be a slam dunk. I would be shocked, um, you know, if they didn't happen. Um, Great. Um, so they're existing highways in a sense, so they're looking to just modernize and update. That's right. Yeah, um, okay. Pretty significant modernization um, in, in addition to some new construction works. So okay. um, these should be you know, pretty solid, reliable projects. Are they going to be adding, like, sort of a, a toll road aspect to it, or is this going to be kind of like... Tolls already exist, okay. which I think is um, actually makes the project even more appealing mm-hmm. um, because you already have an idea of what that demand There's is. contracted revenues. Exactly, exactly. Okay. Um, the government is also um, going to launch engineering studies for uh, a packet of four new roads as well, um, which, you know, should should be exciting to watch, but I think these three, considering that they already exist, are, you know, the ones I'd put my money behind. Excellent. Um, so next, you wanted to discuss Columbia. Yeah, so next is Columbia. So they've got, um, they have a tender out for the technical, legal, economic, and financial structuring um, of regional airports package, PPP. Um, 
cool thing about Columbia right now is that they do have a lot of advisory pre-feasibility, feasibility study tenders out for new exciting sectors in the country, trained PPPs, water treatment plant PPPs. Um, but unfortunately, the country just does not have experience with concession contracts for those types of projects yet. Um, but what they do have experience with um, is airports um, that have come to tender. They've got concessions under operation right now. Airport Regional airport packages do well in the secondary market in Colombia. Um, so uh, these are three existing airports, two on the border with Venezuela, one more in the center of the country. Um, and I think uh, I think we'll uh, we'll see these projects come to tender, and that they should be exciting for the market. Excellent. In terms of the um, the secondary transactions you mentioned, who have been some of the buyers of uh, these airports? That's a good question. Um, our colleague Jonathan Carmody might be a bit better poised to answer it, um, okay. as I don't track the secondary market very much. Um, but there are two or three major. Um, players in the Colombian airport market, so I assume that they would be active in the space. Yeah, I'm guessing uh, Vansi is one of them, because I think they've been buying down mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, so last but not least is uh, Costa Rica, often yeah. a stop on uh, environmental tours uh, on the tourist <laughs> fronts. Had to throw a Central American project in here yeah. for good measure. So um, EDOM was awarded the contract to do the feasibility studies for a uh, San Jose greater metropolitan area light rail. Um, so this is going to connect the capital city with a few surrounding major cities. Um, San Jose is in desperate need um, of public transportation, um, rail public transportation specifically. Um, And so, you know, I think one of the more exciting projects is um, this San Jose, the San Jose train. Um, You know, Central America is always going to be a toss-up, but the reality is right now we're seeing a lot of market players at least watching Central America. Um, Some key markets, Peru, obviously, and to a lesser extent, Chile, um, are undergoing severe paralysis right now. Um, And as folks are looking for new opportunities, they're watching Central America. Costa Rica is one of the countries that people mention most often as one of the more reliable markets in Central America. Um, And I think that this is one of the more exciting projects happening in Costa Rica right now. Um, The country has a handful of concessions under operation, so that's a good sign. Roads, airports, ports. Um, Obviously, you start you know, digging up the streets of San Jose to put in a light rail. That's a very different project from a road. Um, But I think there are reasons to believe that this could be successful. Another interesting thing about Costa Rica is that they just um, passed a reform to their concessions law that's going to strengthen, you know, that market players are hoping is going to strengthen their concessions uh, pipeline. So one of the key parts of this reform is that they now have allocated funds Uh, $6 million a year for the next 10 years um, to devote to pre-investment. So pre-feasibility studies, feasibility studies, um, sounds like what often happens, everyone wants to do big projects. When it comes time to put up the money for pre-investment, no one's raising their hand. So, um, and in the past, they've had to go about securing the funds in one-off ways, like, hey, Ministry of Finance, you have some extra cash. Um, So now these funds are there. They're dedicated for the purpose. Um, so I think we're going to see more uh, study tenders coming out of the country. Hmm. Interesting. I don't think the U.S. even has something remotely like that. Yeah. Um, anyway, with that, uh, Katie, thank you for coming onto the program today. Yeah, I appreciate thank you it. for having me. Great. So next, uh, 
we shift to liquefied natural gas demand. Uh, Molly, you've done a lot of research um, for Spark Spread. You um, also have had uh, some experience working for the New York ISO, just as a side note. Um, what we have is uh, just a, a big trend coming about uh, eight projects that have um, already received their final environmental impact statements, are waiting for approval, and um, you know where things are going. You stand a good chance of getting built and financed, and as you'll talk about in the past, you know these deals are big. Um, it requires a lot of financing and um, faith in the capital markets, which has had a very shaky week in the past week or so. But uh, Molly, why don't you tell us what's going on right now, the here and now, and we'll we'll talk about the financing market later. Sure, happy to. So at the end of 2018, U.S. LNG export capacity stood at 3.6 billion cubic feet per day. And the Energy Information Administration projects that by the end of 2019, U.S. export capacity will more than double and reach 8.9 billion cubic feet. Um, as, uh, so the U.S. is the third largest exporter in the world behind Australia and Qatar. And it's suggested that, that uh, we're about to become the first in the next five years. So the strong demand for LNG, particularly in Asia, continues to grow as it's an economical way to transport gas to overseas markets, um, with demand increasing uh, specifically in Asia and Europe, uh, anticipated to absorb majority of the new supply. Um, The U.S. has a lot of projects coming in on the pipeline. So the U.S. has eight projects approved by FERC and that have begun construction. These projects will add 13.53 billion cubic feet, and seven other projects have been approved and still need to secure financing. Once a project has been granted federal authorization, the next step is to make a final investment decision. Of the 12 projects approved by FERC, only five have made a final investment decision. Most recently, Venture Global reached a final investment decision on Calcaseo Pass project and announced financial close this past Monday. This project was oversubscribed at $5.8 billion and took commitments from 13 banks. Uh, the project also received $1.3 billion from Stone Peak Infrastructure Partners' third fund. So this deal is a promising sign for LNG since it shows a strong appetite from the bank market as well as continued interest in the sector uh, from the equity market. Also recently, Chenier closed the financing to construct its sixth train at Sabine Pass. The financing comprised of a $750 million term, ro- term loan and $750 million revolving credit to match with over 25 banks involved. Uh, here, Chenier used the same model it did for Sabine Pass, which uh, is a model that has the developer go to market for a construction term loan for the facility's first train with the expectation to refinance over and over in the capital markets to fund the rest of the trains. The one exception in LNG we've seen so far is the Golden Pass project, and that's because it didn't use project finance. Its shareholders, Qatar Petroleum, ExxonMobil, and Phillips, were able to pay for the entirety of its development on their own. Uh, this project ach- achieved its FID earlier this year. So still for this next wave of LNG export projects to occur, 14 need to obtain FERC approval. Each of these projects currently project that they should reach an FID by the end of 2020. Um, But we have seen in the past uh, this 
date keeps getting pushed back further and further. Um, still, this means that there's a possibility of 14 projects that could be approaching the bank, bank market in the next 18 months or so. Great. Um, you mentioned Qatar and Australia. Is, are they both chiefly serving uh, the Asian market as well? I mean, who's... Asian and the European Europe market. Europe too, okay. Yeah, those are the two biggest uh, causes of demand. Is there like a severe drop-off after like those top three? I'm sort of wondering Australia, Qatar, and the U.S. I'd have to double-check on that, but I'm pretty sure that in research, they're the only three names that appear. Okay, got it. Okay, so let's talk about the, the financing market a little bit uh, longer. Um, yeah, I mean, 14 projects is a lot, uh, mm-hmm. not only for the bank market, but also for, you know, signing the off-taker, which is the, the important part about this whole thing. That, exactly. That, and that makes all the difference in the world uh, when you're talking about having your capacity contracted or building something on spec, right? Um, which is what we deal with all too often in the IPP market in the U.S. But why don't you explain how it applies to LNG, um, the risks associated with, with building up right. game financing? These banks, they want to see where the project's revenues are coming from. So for these projects to even approach banks, they need at least the golden number is 80% of its capacity contracted. Um Right now, only one of the 14, so five of the projects of the 14 have sale and purchase agreements in place. Mm -hmm. Only one of them, as it stands right now, um, has enough contract volumes that are sufficient enough to secure debt finance, and that's Port Arthur Phase 1, which has agreements with Saudi Aramco and PGNIG for a total of seven of the project's 11 million tons per annum. This doesn't reach that magic number of 80% contracted, but it is being referred to as a sturdy enough number to hit the market. So then the issue we have in the LNG space is that just one of 14 proposed projects has enough contracted capacity in place. And we're in a space right now where we have this trade war with China. China is expected to be the uh, biggest buyer of LNG. So right now, all those contract negotiations that these projects were having have essentially been put on pause. And so we typically expect that a contract would be put in place and the ba- these projects can then hit the bank market. We're kind of in an uncertain point because we'd like to say that they're going to hit the bank soon, but without these contracts, we just don't know. It's possible that they could pivot to Europe, but I don't suspect them to since it's pretty secure that China is the place to get your where you want to be. Yeah, sure. Well, it's going to be really interesting to watch watch for that. Um, there's obviously, as you saw back at Costco Pass, a lot of banks who are participating in the market and Stone Peaks, you know, become a very significant and influential infrastructure fund investor. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, it's going to be... Uh, Really fascinating to watch how this unfolds. Well, thank you for that, Molly. Appreciate the update. Sure. So, Abby, this brings us to the P3 market where um, we've, again, kind of had a rough quarter all in um, with a couple other players uh, reporting damage on their P3 contracts, withdrawing, sort of looking at USNC Lavalin, um, sort of they're dropping out of the market. And then all of a sudden, a really significant project that people do case studies on and talk about a success story falls apart 
and this is the, the Great Hall project at the Denver International Airport. Um, Ferrovial and their partners were picked about for three years ago um, to basically modernize and update um, a segment of the Denver International, Denver International Airport. Uh, so that's the launching point, Abby. Let me let's hear exactly what happened at this point in the past few weeks with respect to this. Right. Thanks, JB. So, as obviously all the listeners probably know at this point, uh, the Denver Inter- International Airport decided to terminate its contract with Great Hall Partners. Like you said, that's led by Ferrovial, uh, which is a global airport developer. So that was seen as pretty unusual because it's it's not like they don't have experience or they took on too much it they should have been able to handle this project and it's not to say that they weren't um but i mean it was a pretty unusual project even back in the tendering stage and then also the city and the authority uh had kind of been at odds with ghp from the beginning um like you said they were selected in june 2016 as the preferred bidder But they were selected under the pretense that they would further negotiate with the airport during the pre-development phase of the deal. So they didn't reach financial close for another 18 months uh, when the bonds priced in December of 2017. Also, the airport let teams bid on an indicative basis. So they were offered, basically they could pick their method of risk transfer. So, you know, whether availability or revenue risk, you know, I spoke to one source who said that Ferrovial did kind of a risk reversion where they accepted a lot of it up front and then started shifting it back to the airport. Um, and then there were also just delays based on structural conditions uh, tied to compressive strengths of the concrete and change orders during the initial phases of construction. Um, so the GHP said that delays caused just by that could delay construction for an additional three years. Um, And then also, I mean, this was a couple days after the decision to cancel the the contract, but GHP said it could cost as much as a billion dollars to finish the project because of delays and these issues with construction. And so, I mean, that's just an entire mess. so now that they're, they're talking about finding a replacement contractor because they own the all the first phase of design. So I don't know that they know yet what delivery method they're going to use, but they have said that they're going to use the existing designs. Um, and they are targeting the first quarter of 2020 to hire a new or to have a new contractor mobilized and on-site so ready to start construction for the project. Um, and, I mean, it It seems like there's not necessarily one exact cause for this cancellation. It's a whole bunch of things, but it's definitely worth noting that Denver Mayor Michael Hancock, he barely won his re-election campaign back in June, and an ally of his and two other in, uh, incumbents were defeated in the city council election. So I think that was like more than almost half, I think, of the city council was brand new. Um, and then also the Denver's Office of Performance-Based Infrastructure, which didn't run that project but is running the other P3 in the area, the National Western Center, which I'll talk about in a minute. 
um, saw its interim executive director, uh, Emily, I believe her last name is pronounced uh, Haber, depart. Um, and so they're hiring someone new there. Um, and I mean, there's there's concern just regarding the new political environment, as there always is, you know, whether or not they're going to be friendly towards P3s or alternative delivery methods at all. Um, And then, I mean, to go back to the National Western Center, there were two teams shortlisted for that project in July. One is led by Macquarie, the other is led by Plenary. Uh, And they've said that the RFP should come in the fall. I spoke to people at the P3 office there. They said that the issue with the Denver airport isn't going to impact them. They said that the two things aren't related. But like I said, there's concern because of the new political environment. And when you see this huge project fail, this, it, like you said, I mean, they were doing, it, it's hailed as a success story. There's a, uh, the San Diego airport has hailed the Great Hall project as, you know, the reason that they're considering using a P3 for a project that they're looking at. And you, when you see something like that fail, it's, I mean, it causes concern in the whole market, and especially in Denver. We could probably hold a separate, um, and we will be holding a separate podcast on ramifications on airport P3 projects um, at some point in the near future. And the reason why I mention this is because, um, you know, we have a couple of high-profile projects uh, over here in New York. Um, we have JFK with their two big terminal projects. Um, we have... Um, potential for more development at LaGuardia and Nork as well. Uh, and then you head out west and people, again, think there's a potential for, for P3s, again, San Diego with their proposal, and then talk about another airport in the L.A. area um, developing here. Um, L.A. itself, of course, there's a hive of development. Um, but there's a lot, and um, a lot of issues came out of this, I think, which reflect broadly upon the sector about the mix, the dynamic between an airport authority and a private partner and that, that balance, um, which seems to not exist in Europe, but here it does, uh, where people have to balance the interests of the public sector and the private sector and somehow has to all come together, and it doesn't come together that neatly or as, as we'd like to see. Um, LAX, I think, was a success story because they weren't modernizing the airport. They weren't building a runway. They were building ancillary projects that were needed anyway. Um, and there was significant political good- goodwill behind it because there was an Olympiad coming to town um, in 2028. So they got a people movers done. It takes you right to a Conrack, a consolidated rent-a-car center. And that's all that's being done between the two projects. The terminals aren't being affected there, you know, by all this. It's, you know, making logistics move quicker. Um, so I think um, it's probably a, a broader topic for a broader day. But thanks for updating us uh, on this particular project, Abby. And we'll, we'll see what the next steps are uh, in the procurement. Um, like you said, there's a design there already. So, you know, we've written before, rarely, but written before about these design bid builds projects, maybe this is what happens because the design's already there. So the contractor's literally just taking the project and running with it. Um, well, I think your sources have indicated it might be something else. But yeah, it could be construction manager at risk. It could be a progressive design build. Right. Um, I, I think it's a little 
I mean, the, the airport authority, I contacted a few people there, and they gave me no indication that they yeah. have even, I guess, kind of gotten there. I think it, it was a little too early when I contacted them, maybe in a month or so. They'll have a better idea. It's a little too early, but we won't we weren't right. the only ones asking that question right. either. So um, anyway, just another quick, maybe a successful note in airport land, you know, because why end the podcast on a bad note? We've talked about negative Nellies for the past 30 minutes here. Yeah. Um, anyway, um, so last week, uh, Airglades um, International Airport, which is a suburban Florida airport project, uh, selected Avports as airport operator and Star America. Um, basically, it's an all uh, cargo. Excuse me, it's an all cargo airport that we've written before about in information. Um, it's kind of there to give an alternative method of deliver, delivering cargo outside of the Miami International Airport. Um, so um, it looks like they're looking to start construction in the. They, there was an, sorry, there's an existing airport there already, but they got the capital commitments now to convert it to an you know a bigger airport. Um, I believe there's going to be new runways involved. Um, and new facilities built. So we're going to uh, begin construction in the first quarter of 2020. And so that's, uh, again, another sort of use of public-private partnerships outside of the traditional P3s we've written about um, that got done. So uh, good news in that front. Anyway, so we um, end the summer with lots of news going on, and this is going to certainly continue through the rest of the year. So uh, stick with us, and uh, we'll see you on the September edition of the podcast, Burke Out. <laughs>